Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hey everyone, you're listening to Living the Dream, and you're joined again with Dave. Follow me on Twitter, at with Sober Senses, and once again, Michael, how's things? Uh, good, Dave, good, good. Just about to eat some lunch on a fine Brisbane sunny day. Have you been enjoying your trip so far? Um, it's been good. Um, however, I have uh, been trying to negotiate the arduous Brisbane ferry system whilst up here. Didn't work out for you? Um, they, they, they required cash, um, so that was something that was quite alien for a, a, a Sydney man. So um, I had to, um, to source out some of this cash, which uh, kind of put things a bit afoot when I'm um, coming here because I, I was running a bit late. So I, again, my apologies, Dave. No, that's fine. To talk about today, Michael, I guess, was um, a couple of different kind of political things that you have been involved in. Um, so to, maybe to start with, you recently wrote an article about the UBI, so universal... I've forgotten what UBI means. <laughs> universal basic income. Oh, my God. How bad is that? What a day. Um, so you've recently kind of joined... We you know we did a show before with Troy, which was pretty interesting about general context, but... Yeah. You've written an article as part of your involvement with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So I guess if you could like tell us about what you wanted to achieve with that article and the context of why it's important for the Unemployed Workers Union. Yeah, so um, I originally wrote that article with it in, in mind of uh, being published with the, the RAG with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Um, so I came up with a draft, um, but at the time um, found that there wasn't enough resources to come up with uh, an upcoming newsletter within the AUWU uh, and that's fairly understandable because it is still a new union and um, very much volunteer well, it is voluntarily driven um, so it's a matter of them trying to find if there's enough hands on deck to come up with a newsletter so unfortunately um, not enough hands you know um, so decided to um, to take my scrap bit of paper somewhere else to see who might pick it up and independent Australia uh, were kind enough to um, to take it take it on, so it went online, uh, and it, I, I I wanted it just to be put somewhere. It was about finding a nice platform for it, um, but I inadvertently kind of found myself in this um, this debate that um, I wasn't really aware of that that was happening. But you know, you you throw an article in there, and suddenly you become exposed to it. Uh, so do you want to maybe like summarise what you were trying to get across with the article and we'll link to it in the show notes too? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's an online article in Independent Australia. So um, the main thrust of the article is talking about the relevance of UBI. Um, and I remember one of the, the big points that, um, that Troy certainly uh, stressed when he did his interview with you guys. Uh, was the idea that UBI is not a new concept. Um, I do agree, it's actually quite uh, an, an old one. Um, so I'm, whole, I'm, I'm definitely of the opinion that um, rather than an introduction, it is a, a revisit to this idea, which I tried to also uh, bring in with commentary in the article. Uh, and also some sort of 
talk about how best it could be introduced um, within um, a Western affluent country like Australia. Um, and it seems to be that tension between um, relying upon good government to introduce it versus something being introduced, like all good things, um, via a vibrant social movement. So my article tends towards the latter in terms of trying to find out what might be the best approaches toward achieving that. And um, <laughs> being a bit of a union hack, I, I like to think uh, that uh, the union current is, is, is one viable option toward achieving that. Yeah, something that's really struck me about this debate around UBI is a tendency to be kind of, to shift from social struggle to almost policy wonkism. You know, that this is a question of getting good people with smart ideas into policy and then they can tinker with the machinery of the state and this will include this new UBI and uh, that will then, you know, solve X problem that exists in Australian capitalist society. Where I guess, like, for me, the interest for me in, U in UBI is, like, a fighting demand, yeah. if that makes sense. Like one that can respond to you know the class composition that we've got at the moment yeah. and particularly like the fragmented class composition of what you might want to call the working class in Australia yeah. in a way that's like it's not bullshit right you want to fight for it and and win it but it would be to like shift the front forwards to butcher military metaphors rather than see it as an end in itself if that makes sense yeah um I mean, I'd certainly like to steer clear from that discussion about um, relying upon good policy. Because, um, yeah, I, I, as you might imagine, I, I have a, a cynical view of um, what a government can do in terms of social progression. Um, within a, within a, a, a government environment as well, where policy tends to emerge through opportunistic windows... Um, rather through any potential um, robust vision, um, I think that's that's where you, you kind of come might go, go astray a bit when you try to introduce UBI within such an environment because you know you you might get a real bastardised version. Um, and for me, it's not for me it's not about trying to introduce something that's like a like a better polished version of the current welfare state. Like I I would like to see something that's a lot more profound. Um, and yeah, so I agree with you that um, that I think it is about looking at it through a class angle and, and working out exactly where are the movements that can emerge within within a within a class class context um, where a UBI can be pushed. But the other thing as well is that um, UBI is not a revolutionary thing. Um, I'm, I think within this this current. Um, economic, socio-economic climate, current political system, it, it's a profound thing, um, but not a revolutionary thing. Um, so, but I would say that it would uh, be a good um, augment um, to class struggle, notwithstanding. Uh, so I, I would like to think that's where the, the, the thoughts and the energy and the organising would best be couched um, in terms of, of getting something like this off the ground in a country like Australia. And also, I think, you know, in a way of, like, responding to, um, like, the real heterogeneous experience people have of work, you know. You know, you've got, in, the, in Australia at the moment, the majority of people that I might technically understand as being part of the proletariat 
individually see themselves as being members of the middle class, yeah. you know, and that's not just to say these people are idiots or wrong or have fault. You know, there's historical material reasons for this, right? And, you know, I think listeners of the show will be familiar with, engaged with the idea before that, you know, the mass factory really doesn't provide people, like, an identity or point of reference anymore. And I see, like, experimenting with the UBI as something to struggle around and win is a way of people, is developing like a common sense, you know, like developing like a collective interest in a way that would like push capital on the back foot, increase our power, our solidarity, and provide the grain the grains for more rebellion, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think with this idea of a, of a middle-class aspiration, I mean, for me, it, it does two things. Um, for one, it for one, for people that can actually afford um, to be within such a, an economic um, virtue, uh, it is an enveloping thing these days. Um, and I suppose that's where you introduce those concepts of the social factory, um, all the Foucauldian stuff about um, the person inheriting um, the idea of of um, of being a tool of their own impression. You know that idea of the body having to be constantly um, constantly being checked and guarded against. You know, it's up to you to go to a hospital. It's up to you to make sure that you got the treatment. It's up to you to, to make sure that you're as healthy a worker as possible, you know, um, rather than the days where it's, it was often your bosses or the, the employment infrastructure that would ensure that um, that you're healthy enough um, to be able to do what you need to do. So, um, and plus there's also that, that, that fragment, that further... Um, um, washing away or blending together blurring sorry of work rest and play you know yeah um like dave you we're having a bit of a chat but you're trying to squeeze this in during your work day you know <laughs> um so you know where's where's the lines of leisure where's the lines of work you know I, I don't think they're so apparent um and the other thing is is that um i think for those that uh, that haven't been able to to come into um to such a a, a virtuous place um, and I do say virtuous in, in, in very much the ironic sense, um, you are certainly missing out. Um, it, is, it is a brutal living if you miss out. Um, it, it is that idea of being forgotten. Um, and I suppose that's where I've kind of gravitated with my activist work these days to find out where those, those lines of struggle are um, and identify them and, and work within it. And I mean, given my upbringing as well, it's like it's something that it hasn't been necessarily an exploratory thing. It's been, for me, it's been a bit more like a reprisal to, to be able to, to, to investigate and help mobilise around such, such lines um, because it, it, it is that idea of saying, well, this is where there is some integral class fracture. I think that's one of the kind of... I don't know if irony is the right word, but, you know, we talk about how, you know, all right, social factory work has exceeded wage labour proper. It's now across society. But if you're one of those people that aren't waged, like, effectively in Australia right now, you're fucked, right? Like, not only, you know, if you're reliant on on welfare, like, it's... Like, I think all the studies that are done shows that you can't actually live in a metropolitan city in Australia reliant on Newstart or the disability support... And also it locks you out from any kind of credit and everyone in Australia is dependent on credit to meet the standard of living except for the most predatory payday loan kind of people and also subjects you to be grist to the mill 
of the unemployment industry, right? Like churned up through the job networks and the like. Like I think it's it's hard to emphasize to overemphasize just how fucked it is to exist on welfare. And you can like I can see the UBI's a demand coming out of those people who are organizing in this space around their conditions for a dignified life, I guess. And I suppose yeah, I agree with all of that. Um how UBI can be that idea of, um, of an aid. Um, and I suppose this is where I can maybe draw into the, the kind of debate that I found myself in when I published yeah, that article. Um, so, yeah, I, I tried in a bit of doo-doo, but, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a nice experience in many ways <laughs> in that um, you uh, find yourself um, squaring off against the, the job guarantee theorists. Um, so, you know, I mean, for me, immediately, it kind of reminds me about that old uh, Marxism v Keynesianism debate, you know, about um, how much do we rely upon the state in, t- in terms of salvation, um, you know, uh, with the jobs guarantee compared to the UBI, where I come from on it with my view is that um, the jobs guarantee, there seems to be a bit more of a codependence upon government, state infrastructure, um, any economic policies by government in order to um, to uh, roll out and then enforce a jobs guarantee. Um, and the other thing as well is like to me is what is the quality of work under jobs guarantee, you know? Um, do people get much of a say in that? Um, is it something where you there is that reliance upon good government in order to, to come up with good quality of work? I'm not so confident about that. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, uh, it sounds to me like, <laughs> and at the risk of being, using hyperbole here, but, you know, like, a, it's the risk of, 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 like, half of Australia suddenly just, like, digging holes. Mm. Um, and then maybe a quarter of them looking to fill those holes up back, back up again, you know? Um, so there is that issue of quality of work um, in order to meet the demands of full employment under jobs guarantee, um, whereas with a UBI that grassroots demand approach um, seems to me where um, a lot more uh, people, particularly vulnerable people, can have more say in, in what can, that can look like. Yeah, and I, I think as well it's like, um, what, do you, what do you lose with the, the jobs guarantee? You, you lose the critique of work, right? The, you know, the kind of critique of wage labour. Because I, I remember um, you know, a long time ago, um, comrades discussing, you know, what's wrong with un- with unemployment. It's not necessarily the absence of work; it's the absence of money. <laughs> you know, though, um, and work itself is, you know, of course, it's where we're exploited. We find it alienating. We don't have any control over it now. And I can imagine if we were to have a social struggle, you know, a real social struggle in Australia that won UBI, you would then use that to free up time to engage in developing non-capitalist ways of living. Yeah. Right? You know. You know, engage in rebuilding commons, engage in, in building community, participating in decisions. You know, I can see it as a platform for future struggle. With a job guarantee, I can't see that. Let me offer an example immediately. Like, um, uh, and, uh, and I hope I'm not out of turn at this because I haven't really got this guy's consent to, um, to talk about it. But um, uh, there's a guy around the traps called Meow Meow Ludo Meow. Um, he is a mate of mine down in Sydney Way. Um, now, he's part of the biohacking movement. Now, what he's been able to do through um, through strategically accessing Sensorlink um, is being able to free himself up to be able to come up with his own business, where he's looking at um, at augmentation 
um, to come up with, um, I would say, socially versatile uh, ways of biohacking. Um, he's received a lot of press with um, with the, the, the chip graft that he did, where he's able to basically just roll his wrist over um, a, a train beeper and he gets on the train. But, of course, that kind of got... What you needed when you were trying to catch the ferry today. Indeed, indeed. Um, would have saved me 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, I suppose that's where I'm coming from with that idea of UBI because it introduces agency and like you said, Dave, being able to dictate the terms of your work a bit more. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, and I guess this is a big, a big shout out to Meow, is that um, he seems to be a real pioneer on that. Um, and that to me, that's a more that extends beyond the idea of the biohacking movement. That that's that's new that's new ways of working um, and beneficial ways of working. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I was struck, um, I'm not sure if you had had a chance to look at it, but Hart and Negri had a new book out either this year or last year called Assembly. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me about that book that's so interesting is they, they call for an entrepreneurship of the multitude, right? And it's like, what? Entrepreneurship isn't that one of their words? <laughs> but they exactly mean this kind of things. You know, like people in struggle, you know, having the space and access to the tools to begin to invent in endless and countless experiments to transform our lives. You know, like it, to escape from the idea that our alternative is simply top-down state planning, right? But is actually grabbing the potentials of the moment. And you, I, this is one of those things where you kind of see, you know, you kind of see people do this all the time anyway. You know, people are involved in so much interesting stuff outside their wage work where they're attempting to be creative with themselves and with others. It's obviously there's something there, right? Like, so then the question is for those of us that, you know, consciously want to see a different society, like how do we tie this together with something that becomes a collective struggle, I guess? So I guess I put this question to you, Dave, would um, UBI be seen then as a, as a threatening um, concept to some? Yeah, look, I think so. And, and you would be worried if it didn't, right? But I guess this goes back to a point you made before is like, you know, it depends how UBI comes in. Like I can see that, you know, UBI could be something that could be instituted, um, you know, by a capitalist state to effectively maintain cheap labour for export competition overseas. You know, the government pays a UBI, therefore wages can be lower. I can see that. You know, I can also see it being a kind of SOP to deal with high levels of unemployment to maintain social stability. So the point for me then is, is the movement. You know, it's not the policy approach. It's like it matters how it was built and what we do with it. Yeah. You know, that for me is the is a really key point. Well, to me, the, the, the entry point, an immediate entry point is the idea of organising through a union. Um, and, yeah, the as mentioned in the article, the inner, inner Sydney branch of the AUWU is, is looked to put it up as a demand. Um, Can I you am, talk a bit about the unemployed workers union? What yeah, it is and what it does and certainly. Um, so it's been around for I think a few years now. Um, it originally started in Melbourne um, through a good load of comrades down that way. Um, they are on Centrelink. Um, this isn't um, a financial opportunity for them, uh, not by a long shot. Um, they've got one industrial officer um, who I think from memory it might have changed, but from when I last left it, you, you offered, you, you did it voluntarily. Um, so here's a guy with legal qualification that's basically just working pro bono, but wearing an I, IO hat. Um, 
so that that's the mode of the AUWU. Um, so I came across it when they were offering training. Um, so I made the trip down to Melbourne last year to um, to take part in it. Um, so the the main thrust of the training at the time was about how to navigate how to navigate. Um, uh, God, I can't remember the term now, but it's when you need to enter a job, mutual obligation, there we go, how to, um, to negotiate the mutual obligation process. So what your rights are when, uh, when signing up uh, with a, a, an employment agency, um, where things stand in terms of appropriate attempts to look for work, what the employment uh, organisation needs to do for you in terms of help you look for work, all of that gets threatened. Uh, fleshed out in the training and it was also about skilling you up to doing some volunteer work as well on a hotline um, which was more or less um, where s someone taps their phone un into a, a phone account owned by the AEWU and then they start taking calls um, so you know there's a digital edge to it as well um, so in that sense a very contemporary union um, but yeah the challenge is is with building it um, and you know, also seeing other unions affiliate and support it. Um, because it does go against the grain of traditional unionism in the sense that what are some of the things that you're agitating for? What are some of the things that you're arguing for? Um, there's an ambulance supporting the union movement. Uh, they see the emergency as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those those clutch issues of better wages and better work standards um, they're not exactly within the scope of the AUWU you're looking at members that um, that really want to try to access or be able to enter that that sphere where they can kind of start arguing for those kind of rights so when you're looking at it for a, a, through a grander union sense like where does the AUWU fit in is there recognition of the AUWU? Do other unions get it? You know, those are the things I kind of like to explore through um, through this work and through looking at things like UBI and and the demands that um, that a forum like AUWU make towards such a thing. And of course, like the demand for the UBI isn't just for people on welfare, right? It's a universal demand. So part of the demand is for everyone paid or waged as a job or otherwise would receive this. To you know, to build like a common collective point. Sorry. Got you right in your mouthful of noodles, didn't I? Yeah. Sorry, Dave. And you also said something very quickly then. So <laughs> no, don't worry about it. Uh, let, let's move on then. Um, so uh, look, I imagine one of the real challenges with organising people on welfare is just how um, you know Centrelink and Job Network uh, have been restructured in a way to individualise people. Yeah. You know, when I've talked to older comrades like Nick and Sharon about their experiences in the Wollongong out of workers, you know, they used to organise in the waiting room of the DSS because yeah. everyone would, would be there for hours and hours and hours hanging out in the DSS. I just want to say that was fucking legendary what the stuff that, that the comrades did back in the day. Um, I'd really like to return to, to that kind of organising, but the terrain has changed remarkably. Yeah, exa exactly right, because it's like, I know that I've got, there's comrades in, I don't know if the Unemployed Workers Union is in Brisbane, but I know that I've got comrades are involved in the Anti-Poverty Network, and I don't know the difference between the two groups, like why some people are in the Anti-Poverty Network and why some people, and I'm, you know, we can talk about it if you want, but I don't particularly want to create a shit fighter, but I know that's one of the challenges they've faced, is how do you organise 
this dispersed force. You know, it would be a while ago I was involved in an effort to try to um, organise against the introduction of the introduction of the basics card, yeah. and it was the challenge that we had because people turn up to Centrelink and fuck off. Right, like it's not a place you ne- necessarily want to hang out. So we attempted to make it a place you wanted to hang out. Well, just just like a fun fact, it's like the mob that um, the corporation that created the Basics card, Inju, um, their head office is in Brisbane. So if there's any keen Brisbane types up here that are looking for a bit of a blarney, um, they're a good mob to um, to basically pick it in front of. Yeah, how interesting. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, that that kind of challenge of responding to the individualised nature of what it means to be on welfare today. You know, how, how does the workers' union attempt to, to deal with that? Yeah, um, and I just don't want to lose this thought as well about the idea of the anti-poverty network um, because I think it can be very easy to start saying um, we're a small union, come on bigger union movement, make things better for us small folk. Um, and that's about, you know, potentially um, trying to get in the ear of the ACTU as the saviour. Um, but... There are other uh, very likely groups out there where you can kind of um, where you can kind of um, organise uh, horizontally um, rather than looking to, to move up the ladder and trying to get to the, the recognition that way. Um, so there is the anti-poverty network, and they've been around a bit longer than the AUW. Um, and I would hazard to say that there's a few actors out there who like to wear both of their hats. Um, I don't think they're really too fussed about. Um, what that looks like and whether they identify themselves as anti-poverty network or a, excuse me, AUWU. Um, you know, I think that, that it's more, I think the issues are a bit more urgent. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, was there anything in the uh, critiques that people made of your position from a job guarantee perspective that you were like, all right, fair point? Or was it all bullshit? A lot of grey boomer men talking with that jobs guarantee stuff. I think that was a salient trend. Yeah, it's a real... Like, you know, I was talking about wonkishness before. I find the jobs guarantee to be really the most wonkish approach. <laughs> and also, there, and there's certainly no idea that it is something that um, people who are currently unemployed really fight for. You know, like, the approach seems to be you get a bunch of, like, smart economists together who are all into modern monetary theory... And they create the justification. Then they, you know, through a political project, take the levers of state investment and then it's solved. And it's certainly also interesting, like, because before I was coming up with you today, I did a little bit of skiving off at work to re-familiarise myself with um, my critique of the modern monetary theory because every six months I look into it, make a critique, forget. And certainly even their diagnosis of the problem is one of bad ideas. You know, we've got this shit, you know, capitalism's not working because there's bad economic ideas that make us have bad economic policy, particularly bad monetary policy. What we need is good ideas, you know, that will lead to good policy and then we'll have good capitalism. Where I think that's the kind of analysis that I find insufficient and I assume you find insufficient as well. It just makes me feel like we're going back to the same old Marxist versus Keynesian arguments, you know. Um, It's just it's been painted up as something else. Um... Yeah, it's like in the end, in the long run, we're all dead, but it's like I don't want to die working, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Um, I did also, while I've got you to ask you some questions, you were one of the few people that attended the Tim Stupomasan, like, his final uh, lecture as as the Racial Discrimination Commissioner, 
which was at the University of Western Sydney, or is it Western Sydney University now? <laughs> it's changed its name, hasn't it? Uh, I just call it Wanderers University, I don't know. <laughs> at Wanderers University, at the Whitlam Centre there. Look, I've been a bit fascinated by both the speech and the event because John Hewson also spoke there. So John yes. Hewson was, you know, oppositional Liberal leader who lost the unlosable election in the early 90s. Yeah. And it seemed also as well that um, Supomason, like, really, like, went out by attempting to make a broad-based statement, right? Like, and for me, it's, it's, no, it's someone who's at the top of the establishment in some ways you know he's a he was you know he's up there as a powerful public servant it's certainly not the politics that i have but i thought it was important you know like that it is it, both for its con um its content but also indicative of like something's going on in australian society and the state the problem of racism yeah. and a division has emerged within powerful circles of how to address it yeah um uh, like I attended, um, I attended Tim's speech, um, not through trying to see if there was any potential lessons to be learnt and how to um, fuck shit up, but um, just because of the the sounds that were coming out ahead of what he was going to talk about. Because um, I, you know, for me, what um, Tim normally says is quite prosaic. I mean, you know, he says some progressive things, but it's always still within a frame of. Um, of social democracy um, and trying to challenge racism and uh, looking at uh, culture um, within the social democratic uh, lens. Um, but just listening to when he talked uh, in that final speech, it, it did seem like he was doing a very in a, in a very polite, diplomatic way of um, proceeding to hold two middle fingers up to the press um, and to other political competitors in terms of saying, well, look, this is what's happened under my watch. A lot of change, um, a lot of racist undercurrent. Um, I think you would be too polite to say um, a potential rising fascist, uh, fascist undercurrent. Um, but the sentiment was there, um, you know. And to me, it, it kind of begs the question, like, um, does that mean there's going to be a response uh, within, within a, a governmental standpoint on this? Um, I don't think uh, I honestly don't think government's stable enough to do so. But I think it was nice that um, that Tim d did say what he had to say. But to me, it just felt like a dude that spent he did his term as commissioner, and suddenly he was just doing this real Victorian uh, release of repressive stuff. <laughs> You know, just saying all the stuff that I think you really wanted to say for five years, but couldn't. And then when he had the chance to, he just went, fuck it, I'm just going to say it anyway, you know. And of course, it's like a lot of the stuff there, you know, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with. But um, for a social democrat, you know. Yeah, I, like I thought, like, you know, because I read the speech a couple of times and I watched the video and I'll link again to it as well. I really recommend, I think people, you know, of our broadly kind of politics should pay attention to these kind of statements and these kind of debates and, you know, think about them. Um, so I'll put the I'll put the stuff on on the notes for the blog. But he seemed to make a number of different claims that made me think, get thinking. You know, like one hand, he's certainly a proponent of saying that Australia is a successful multicultural society. Like, sorry, Dave, sorry to cut you off, but just one of the things that you were mentioning to me in um, like a conversation earlier was this idea that you feel that he might be a bit of a neo key tonight. 
Yeah, I think he is. I think he's. I think he's really. You know, he's the last of the Keating supporters. And so, you know, because you think about it, like um, I think about it, maybe it's just I'm getting old. You think about the '80s a lot. You think about your childhood. <laughs> but you know, so you're certainly. You know, we've had Liz on on the show, and I certainly agree that the Hawke Keating government was really the neoliberal Australian government. But they did also have a kind of cultural politics that was formally anti-racist. They really, like, wanted to track... Within a social dem- democratic come neoliberal frame, like questions of Indigenous disadvantage, you know, a republic, a re- revived culture, all that stuff that when you talk to young people... I know it's a boring example, but I say to people, you know, in the early 90s, you'd pick up the Sydney Morning Herald every Saturday there would be people, there'd be a competition about what the new Republican flag is going to look like. And people, it's unbelievable to think about that, right? And if that didn't get your attention, the loud 90s ties would. <laughs> but, you know, and then after, um, after Howard won, the Labor Party just dropped that whole Keating Hawke cultural tradition, right? And became a small target about that. Yeah. And, you know, Sir, Sir Pomerson was really arguing, I think, you know, from that Keatingist line, but also saying that it had largely been successful. And something that he said that has really stuck with me was like, you know, the, the educational and employment results of children of migrants. Okay, so that, you know, cut, no, that doesn't really say what are the ethnic backgrounds of those migrants, because just one group have better outcomes than people who are um, children of people born in Australia, which would be an indication that, you know, something has happened in Australian society that's going right. And then the thing that I thought was super radical was saying that the racism, in fact, is a project from a minority that is above. You know, that he was saying it was, you know, the right side of the politicians and the media that were, like, actually pushing a line of racism that he then argued is out of touch with the general opinions of Australian society. So there's a lot there. I'm not sure what I agree with, what I disagree with, but what I really liked about that was, you know... I think to be anti-racist today, you've also got to acknowledge that things have changed since the 60s. Because otherwise, you'd say things would never change. I still think racism exists, but I think victories have been won. And people live an incomparably different life than they did in the 80s in terms of multiculturalism. But also, he wasn't blaming bogans. You know, he wasn't saying this is the uneducated problem of the outer suburbs. He was actually saying, no, these are the elites that are the manufacturers of racism. And... For that, I thought, that's fucking fire. I don't know if he's got the solution, you know, whatever. I'm not signing up to his project. But that bit, I thought was incredible. Because I think it is a very easy thing to do, to be able to uh, place the focus on who's creating the hate amongst um, disaffected white middle-class people, um, i.e. the Bogans. I mean, you know, being a coloured dude myself, it is, to me, it is a very easy target. (laughs) But... uh, yeah, I, I think um, Tim is right, and I think what Tim is saying there is strategic in many ways in, in trying to return it to, um, to government and the, to, to it being a government and leadership issue um, in terms of uh, how racism might continue to permeate. Um, and I suppose the other thing as well like I'd like to, to, that, I've, that I'd like to identify there is that um, the political narrative really did uh, change under Howard. Um, and I don't think that can be really under that can be underestimated uh, because it was a very subtle thing, and I think it was just something that kind of got grinded out in in the the time that Howard was around. You know, um, I felt very irrelevant under Howard's years. Like like I was a teenager and growing up and trying to find my own identity, and 
I, it just felt like I didn't count. Uh, it felt like, and this was before I really had the, the, the idea of what class was. Um, I mean, you'd have some sort of childlike ethereal idea of what it would be because you know what rich and poor is, right? Um, but just seeing the, the images that were constantly there and, you know, when you're looking at what clothes to buy or what movies to watch, um, you'd always see like white middle class ideals being shown um, within, uh, within the imagery. Um, and I would say that there is a connection there between that sort of, that sort of stuff um, and what Howard was, was producing because when you mix it all together, like it's an, hege it's an hegemonic thing. Um, you know, this is the stuff that I think was, um, was, uh, was Howard's project. Um, and for Tim to say these things, it, it does make you wonder. It's like, is, is he just saying stuff that's been there all along? Has there been change? Um, or is he just trying to return things to a more common narrative? Um, these are all the thoughts that are suddenly coming into my head because it sounds he's saying there's something something's changed, but has it changed? Yeah. And I also wonder, like, how much like that speech is you know who's his audience, right? Is it the Whitlam Centre at Wanderers University? So arguably, maybe who he's talking to is the Labor Party, right? And he's a Labor Party man. You know, too, that like basically saying that you don't have to ape the right on racial politics to win. That there's actually a, the, the, you can actually defend um, social democratic, perhaps, anti racism and multiculturalism, and that can be a popular position. You know, which, which I, um, I think, yeah, Howard was like, I don't like, I don't like, you know, those kind of like Howard as a, it's more about the Howard Times rather than him and just as an individual. But the, pro the meaning of his name, that project, was to be able to respond, I guess, to the changing class composition of the time, the beginning of the mining boom, with a particular kind of cultural nationalism yeah. that couldn't, couldn't be openly racist, but had a very you know, clear <laughs> racial dynamic to it as well, even as Australia was changing in profound ways at the same time. Well, that's where I come from with it being like a very subtle thing and you encounter it when you grew in, while growing up by seeing, well, you know, like what does an athlete, you know, to, to feel like you're, you count and you feel like there's some sort of validity about you. It's like, you know, what does a white middle class kid look like and how do they dress? How do you emulate that? That seemed to be the feeling about how... He was kind of doing it, um, doing it in the night. If that makes yeah. sense. No, it does. Now, did you have any particular critiques of Tim's speech? Any critiques? Sorry. Of, of Tim's speech. Um, what were you thinking? You asked the question as well, didn't you? Yeah. So when they did the Q and A there, um, I was actually trying to see if um, if he was happy to kind of see if there was any commonalities between what he was saying and also some of the struggles that refugees uh, refugees might be encountering, especially trying to. Um, get passage into Australia. Because that was what was absent from his speech, wasn't it? Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you, you talk to your audience. <laughs> um, so it was interesting. So I put that to the panel and there were three guys there, like two other guys there as well as Tim. Um, one was the shadow treasurer whose name escapes me. Um, but there was also John Hewson there, who um, I don't know whether it's like he's kind of getting uh, advanced in his old age, 
um, with in terms of cognitive capacity, but um, he's become a bit more moderate. I think he might be suffering from Fraserism. I don't. I think you're 100% right. <laughs> Let's get us out and we can talk about that a bit. Right? Yeah, so um, it was put to the panel. Um, Houston entered the discussion by saying that, um, that everything has been happening with the refugee policy is fucked. Just bring them here. Um, and that raised a few eyebrows. Um, Tim wholeheartedly agreed, but um, didn't really want to go into finer detail about it because I sense that um, he's basically weighing up his options to see what he's going to do post race race commissioner officer, uh, race Senate commissioner, maybe. perhaps. Um, and uh, and of course the the shadow treasurer just absolutely glossed over it and talked about other things, more safer things. Um, so it was just interesting to see um, how the response was, but. Yeah, I, it's quite apparent, it's quite clear, you know, that um, if you're going to talk about race, if you're going to talk about culture, and if you're going to talk about the appreciation of all of that uh, within Australia, then then um, you have to appreciate the fact that um, it's always in a state of flux, and refugee intake really does assert that idea of flux, you know? It's hard to talk about anti-racism if you're not going to talk about the detention centres, you know, the huge military apparatus that is torturing people, and, Correct. you know... It's pretty hard to do that. But I think um, Hewson as well, you know, he's, he's, he's an opposition to Keating, but he's also a Keatingist in his way, yeah. that he was the opposition for the time and Keating, that Keating project had won a certain hegemony, right? Yeah. So, like, his, um, his free market neoliberalism... Thank you very much. Uh, his free market neoliberalism had to understand itself as being one of anti-racism. You know, also being multicultural, I think. You know, he yeah. did um, oppose, apparently, the Marbo decision back in the day, so it'd be interesting to see if he's changed his mind on that. But it was really interesting having him speak there. I thought that was kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, I think he would, he'd be pretty cool with, um, with Nadia Title these days. Um, but just seeing that the way he presented himself, like, he, he sounded like a frustrated Keating, Keating-eyed himself, yeah. you know? Um, and it just makes you think back in the 90s, it's like he was, maybe when he was engaged with what Tom Keating had to say, I think he was often kind of feeling like, God, I wish I could talk like him. Imagine how frustrated Keating must feel these days. <laughs> well, maybe it's like both of them maybe got together over a beer one night and said, man, I wish we were involved in some kind of Freaky Friday scenario, or could we just like switch identities throughout 24 hours, and then it'd be like a therapeutic thing for us. Okay, so the la- I'm going to have to head back to work in the moment. The last thing you said you did want to have a chat about was um, some of the struggles around public housing that you've yeah. been involved in. Um, so, yeah, glad that you fit that in, Dave, because, uh, yeah, kind of been on for a bit of a rant and array for the last couple of um, recordings. <laughs> so thanks for grounding me. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm involved with Action for Public Housing, um, but with variable um, effort at the moment because um, I just started a master's, so I'm just trying to work out exactly how I can fit it all in. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, there was a big, act, like a, a day of action um, for public housing that, um, that the group organised. Um, and I suppose when I say group, I'm also also saying that it is a coalition of different social housing groups within Sydney. Um, where Action for Public Housing is trying to position itself, I would say is an interse- is on an intersectional basis, where it is about trying to find, um, trying to create like a spokes in a wheel. Um, but they also helped uh, a lion's share with the organising the the, the day of action. 
Um, so there was about 100, 150 people that were in front of the gates of state parliament to um, to make a, well, just well, amongst other things, like a key demand where any redevelopments to happen in Sydney, there at least needs to be a 30% complement of public housing. Um, and, you know, when we were first talking about that when organising action, we were kind of thinking, okay, well, this is a bit of a dream, but... Um, I think it's about talking about the possibilities and actually opening up that debate. Um, and if it, if it actually ever comes about as um, as an executed demand uh, that or demand that will work or happen, um, that um, that will be a bonus. But I think for me, what was also uh, quite interesting as well is that um, the turnout of speakers, like. Um, uh, there was uh, those Greens. There was Jenny Leong. There was um, there was Jamie Parker, uh, and I'm just trying to remember all. Is he mayor of Leichhardt? Sorry. Is he the mayor of Leichhardt uh, or is a councillor? He was, um, but now I think he's with state government. Oh, okay. But he's with the Greens. Keeping up with it. That's yeah. all right. Yeah, they um, they're they're all climbing the ladders there uh, in the inner west. Um, so Jenny, Jamie, uh, Alex Greenwich, um, who has his own uh, his, has his own party, but you may as well just regard him as a green. Um, he just wears a, a snappier suit and he irons it. Um, and um, who else was there? A couple of social housing speakers. There was Barney Gardner, who was one of the big um, activists during the uh, Milson's Point uh, resistance effort there. Um, so yeah, there was there was quite a range of speakers, and there was a lot of interest from um, from parliamentarians towards it. Oh, and uh, yeah, Tanya Maha, Ma- Ma- I can never pronounce her name, but yeah, some Labourite from Western Sydney. <laughs> Google it, folks. You'll know who I'm talking. And about. the Communist Party involved as well. I seem to see they're sharing lots of photos. Uh, yeah. So um, the there's a there's a within the Action for Public Housing there is um, there is a presence by CPA. Um, so there's. Um, there's some commos that um, that are some public housing residents as well, <laughs> as it is. Um, so there was a, for 150 people, there was a pretty good cross-section of political expression, you know, different parties, different people, um, people turning out, just wanting to try to get some sort of outcome. And um, I, I think that's all good. Um, it is, public housing is one of those things that that have definitely been forgotten and um it is something that's become really consumed within that rhetoric of housing being a privilege and not a right and and housing in cities housing in cities fucked right exactly um with exorbitant prices um and it and it also works upon generation lines as well like i mean it if you I mean, you're you're pretty sweet if you already have the por- the the portfolio with the assets and housing and and all that sort of stuff. But if you're children, if you're just trying to break into the market, then it's very tough going. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to rely upon uh, what um, wealth your family might have um, in the, in order to break into it, or you've just really got to be really good at squirreling away money. Yeah. I often think it's like the wealth of like the Fordist generations are necessary to subsidise the post-Fortis generations, if that makes sense. You know, like, I think about you know, my parents, my grandparents, you know, working under a Fortis period of time were able to buy a house, yeah. you know, and it's only, like, I've got a mortgage, but it was only because we got supported from my parents, relying on inherited wealth from their, from their parents and, I, you know, not doing anything particularly salubrious, you know, teachers, butchers, yeah. these kind of things. Yeah. And that's also a migration story. You know, if your family migrated here before the end of the 70s, that's very different than if you're migrating now. Yeah. 
yeah. right? I think that's off. You know, like West End, which is one of the suburbs that people talk about. If they, I don't know about the term gentrification, if I like it or not, but they use it to, to talk about Brisbane gentrification. A lot of the houses there are owned by Greek blokes who bought them in the fifties, working as blue collar workers, right? Yeah. And they're now worth a million dollars. But that's that's not a migration story that's going to happen for a Sudanese family coming to Australia today. Um, that's right, and yeah, the, and and, and uh, there's one consistent thing out of this is is that um, migration always happens on different ethnic waves, and um, the reaction to it is that there seems to be the uh, different ways that um, that this is reacted to by the right, um, by the right wing. Um, but I suppose just to bring it back to housing, like. Um, When you look to compare this with a, with a labour movement, because like you know, um, it was you had jobs for life about a generation ago, um, and working at work was a lot more secure. Uh, wages were a lot more stable. Um, there isn't the, as as profound a stagnation in wage rates as there are now. Um, all of this um, was happening as well, and I think people liked that progression because it was able to and I mean this could be me generalizing but a great incentive was the fact that you could buy a house with the wealth that you could have by being a working class member um, so there was that and I suppose from there it morphed a little bit into aspirationalism and I think that paralleled with a bit more of a fracture of, of working class where you see some people are still able to afford um, being able to, to have that idea of ownership, whereas you're seeing suddenly people becoming entering a, 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 a rental market um, and having to adopt all the stigmas thereof, and then social housing as well becoming even more residualized into welfare housing, um, and where the stigmas just become real profound. Um, where before social housing was a springboard into home ownership, these days it's it's something where people go into because they can't go into that market economy that that also embraces home ownership so so yeah just a, a lot of splintering there and I, I think I guess the question for um, a, a social movement there is trying to work out I know you got to get to work Dave so I'm going to try and wrap this up where all the commonalities lie in terms of things that converge. Um, and I don't know if I can say converge again, because I think the issues have changed. They've become a lot more different than they were about t t 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but it's there. And I mean, I mean the last couple of things, the last two recordings that we've been doing here, over the two recordings that we've been doing here, are, um, I've, we've spoken about a variety of issues um, and ones that I've been keen to get involved with as an activist. Um, and it's stuff that, that I think is just really important, you know, in terms of, of, of trying to, to build something and, and help with solidarity and also um, trying to find some sort of meaning personally. Um, being like a, a working class grot that, um, that in many ways missed the boat themselves, you know. Yeah, maybe if not converge, resonate is a word I sometimes <laughs> like. Different struggles that resonate with each other. Yeah. has a cool sci-fi vibe. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you very much for being such a supporter of Living the Dream. Yeah. Um, also making the time on your holiday to record two of these interviews. Um, Can I just say as well, Dave, that, um, yeah, like I, I've, I donated a bit of money towards this effort, but um, 
I think what you and John are doing is, is very important and it really does feed into this um, increasingly vibrant um, podcasting community that's happening up this way. Um, so yeah, it's like, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I'm just fanboying out right now, but... Um, Stop. <laughs> uh, well, you don't have to go to work, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's all um, it's all very great, and um, it was definitely worth my trip up here to um, to be able to to offer something in person for you guys, and um, always there for you. Love yous. Thanks, Michael. We'll catch up again soon. You've been listening to Living the Dream. Tarquin has a job Mary Berry's got a job So why don't you get a job? Well done Why don't you win a medal? Even Tarquin wins a medal Mary Berry's got a medal So why don't you get a medal? Well done I'd rather cut my nose off To spy my Tarquin has a degree Mary Berry's got a degree So why don't you get a degree? Well done! Why don't you like reggae? Even Tarquin likes reggae Mary Berry loves reggae So why don't you like reggae? Well done! Why don't you watch football? Even Tarquin likes football Trevor Nelson loves football So why don't you watch football? Well done! I'd rather cut my nose!